Good morning. Welcome to Sabbath School class. Um, my name is Wendell Moses. I'm substitute teaching today, and I appreciate your participation, whether you are here or whether you are looking online and maybe even viewing it later. So um, anyway, um, let's bow our heads with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming together and studying your word. Be with us. Send your spirit. May each of us have a willing spirit, ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to accept what you have to give for us. May we honor you in this class. Amen. So, um, I just thought of something. Um, I probably ought to say something as far as thanks for my heritage. Um, uh, This week, I was looking for resources, you know, for the the class, etc., and scrambling a bit, and I pulled out books out of my bookshelf, and out fell a little book. And it was, it was called The Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. And I thought, well, that's perfect. And I looked, I thought, well, where did I get this thing from? And on the front of it is October 18th, 1936. That was shortly before I was born. Um, <laughs> this apparently was my mother's, that she received close to or on her birthday, her 15th birthday, and somehow I inherited. Now, I was reading it this week, and it has essentially fallen apart in my hands, me trying to read it this week, but um, we're, we're indebted to our parents, and we're indebted to the, our families, we're indebted to the people who we grow up with, and our friends who bring us along and help us, etc., and I just thought I ought to at least give tribute to my mom, who... Um, um, <laughs> uh, trying to figure out when she was born versus when this was given to her this uh, last night, um, I came across a little thing that I did with my um, at her funeral, and um, she was a woman that made me so frustrated, and yet I owe many things to her. So anyway, all right. So the lesson this week is um, the Sermon on the Mount, um, and. I'm sure that there's college classes that are taught uh, just for this um, purpose. Is that me? Okay, anyway. Um, I'm sure that um, there's college classes that are taught on this topic and and consume everything that we ever wanted to know, and we're going to cover it in about, you know, 45 minutes or so. Um, But the memory verse was Matthew 7, 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one had authority and not as their teachers of the law. When I think of, of the, the characteristics, um, I think of the movie Fiddler on the Roof and the rabbi in that movie is very timid and, well, it could be this way and, well, it could be this way. And when you think of Christ and his discourse, he spoke very forcefully. And, you know, etc. I'd like to ask three, as, as a basis of our discussion about the Sermon on the Mount, I'd like to ask three questions from current events. I'd like for you to think about this, okay? What do the current presidential candidates want for themselves? Okay? <laughs> All right. Second question. What outcomes do the Democratic and Republican parties 
want in the current presidential election. I don't think those two things are, are the same. Okay? And three, the third question is, what outcome does the current electorate want from the presidential election? I mean, we started with, I don't know, was it 12, 15, I don't know how many Republican candidates, you know, we started out with three or so Democratic candidates, we're down to two Democratics, we're down to three or four or five, I don't know how many is, um, uh, Republican, you know, um, candidates, at least three, um, etc. If you look at the people that they have, are being voted for as an indicator, what is it that the people who are voting really want. I have very few friends on Facebook, okay? That's purposeful. Um, my immediate family, and I don't know, I, in a weaker moments, I have elected a couple friends to get on my Facebook as well. And so I probably have 20 friends, I don't know, maybe 30 friends at the most on my Facebook, etc. And that's all I can stand. Um, but they, it's very polarized. I mean, about half of them are very strong, democratic, very, very one way of seeing things. And the other half are very much right-wing, um, conservative. They have a certain way of seeing things. And I'm sitting in the middle looking at this and saying, I don't want to see this, I don't want to see this kind of thing on the Facebook, whatnot. And I think... What are these people wanting, and where are they in life with their ideas that this is what they're saying as their political background? Okay? So I'd like just to, to have that as a background. I didn't want to spend too much time on it, but a little bit of th thought about where are we in current culture and society, specifically America, what do we want, and what is our outlook? Okay? A survey in 2010 showed that 40% of Americans believe that Jesus is likely to return by 2050. 40%. This varies from 58% of white evangelical Christians through 32% of Catholics to 27% of white mainline Protestants. So I thought, okay... So that's the second coming of Christ. What is the second coming? What do they think the second coming of Christ is? 27% of white mainline Protestants. About, about a third of the Catholics, 58, about 68, 60% of um, white evangelical um, Christians. Okay? So I, I looked on the internet, Google, said, okay, um, what is the second coming of Christ? So I got gotanswers.org has answers to everything. And so they say that the second coming of Christ is the hope of believers that God is in control of all things and is faithful to his promises and prophecies in his word. In his first coming, Christ came to earth as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, just as prophesied. Jesus fulfilled me these prophecies of the Messiah during his birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection. However... There are some prophecies regarding the Messiah that Jesus has not yet fulfilled. 
The second coming of Christ will be the return of Christ to fulfill these remaining prophecies. In his first coming, Jesus was the suffering servant. In his second coming, Jesus will be the conquering king. In his first coming, Jesus arrived in the most humble of circumstances. In his second coming, Jesus will arrive with the armies of heaven at his side. Okay? Now, is anything in that statement incorrect? But, based on what you believe, on what he's coming to do, you will come up with markedly different ideas of why he's coming back and what he's going to do when he gets here. Okay? Many of those people who are my Facebook friends who are, um, shall we say, to the right of the curve, when they talk about what, what the presidential candidate is going to do, sometimes they wax eloquent and they get over into the religious realm and they say what the, the president should do for the Christians prior to the second coming of Christ. So, with that in mind, what was the context for Christ's delivery on the Sermon on the Mount? What did the Jews, or the, the, the inhabitants of, of Palestine, think that Christ was supposed to be like, the Messiah was supposed to be like, when he came? Just like the second coming. They believed that he was going to be the conquering king with his armies. Okay, so the sequence of events. He had, okay, Christ came, had the baptism, okay? He had a fast and then was tempted in the wilderness. He had for approximately a one-year Judean ministry in which he did healing and preaching and whatnot around Jerusalem in Judea, okay? That ended badly. He healed a person at the pool of Bethesda. He was brought in before the Sanhedrin and essentially was... At that time, they wanted to get rid of him, but they couldn't because the public, you know, stood up for him. They did get rid of John the Baptist at that point. So John was imprisoned, and Jesus withdrew from Judea to Galilee at that point. He had been preaching for a whole year. One-third of his, his ministry had already occurred. Okay? If you look at what he was preaching, uh, Matthew 4.17, just before the... the um, Sermon on the Mount, it says, this is his message. Turn away from your sins because the kingdom of heaven is near. Okay? So that was his message. It was during this time or shortly thereafter that he recruited his first disciples. Now, at the, at the baptism, he had a couple people come up and say, hey, who are you? Where are you staying? Whatever. Kind of investigated about it. And then he went over to the, to the wedding of Cana and whatnot. But they... They were kind of vagrant disciples. And then after this preaching for a year, his miracles and whatnot, he came to, to Capernaum, started living in Capernaum, started preaching, started doing healings. Everyone became flocking around him. And he then recruited his first four disciples that were kind of permanent people. Okay? So, Peter and Andrew, James and John. Okay? And so... What did they start following him for? What were they expecting? You know, the devil has done, been a master at preparing the world for his first coming. 
Okay? Reading from this little book that I referred to before, when the Savior began his ministry, the popular conception of the Messiah and his work was such as wholly unfitted the people to receive him. The spirit of true devotion had been lost in the tradition and ceremonialism, and the prophecies were interpreted at the dictate of proud, world-loving hearts. The Jews looked for the coming one, not as a savior from sin, but as a great prince who should bring all nations under the supremacy of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Very similar to the the statements that I get on Facebook. Okay? Um, So, in place of the one coarse garment, which was their covering by day and their blanket at night, they hoped that Christ would give them the rich and costly robes of their conquerors. Okay? So, the Sermon on the Mount consumes about three chapters, five, six, and seven, in Matthew. Okay? It covers the Beatitudes, the believers in their relationship with the world, salt and light and teaching of Moses and prophetic writings and personal righteousness. Okay? Talks about personal relationships, giving to the poor, prayer, fasting, what you value, God versus wealth, anxiety and God's provisions, judging others, again, another reference to prayer, the golden rule, the tree and its fruit, and what foundation are you building on, the man with the built, you know, house, etc. Okay? So why did Christ say this collection of things at this time? What was he trying to convey? He was trying to adjust his their thinking. About what? The way the kingdom was going to be set. I mean, they, you know, he would, everything that he said um, in the sermon was, this is what they say, but this is what it is, kind of thing. So it's, it was more of a correction, it seemed to me. Yes. He wanted hard preparation for his kingdom. Okay. Likewise, that's what we want now, but that's not the direction things are going. Russell? Throughout his ministry, he was trying to prepare people for the my kingdom is not of this world, which he said in front of Pilate. And throughout his ministry, it still it, it never did sink in. And like she said, he's trying, he's planting the seeds, trying to prepare hearts. He's trying to reveal the nature of the government and kingdom of God the Father and the character of God the Father. So was this was this about rules of behavior? No. I mean he described he described behavior. Okay. So this okay, rules of behavior, principles of heaven, guidelines for the believer. In what way do guidelines for the believer work? Okay. All right. So, you know, it's my premise after looking at this this past week that every teaching is a verbal description of what God is like. If you go over the Beatitudes, God is not spiritually arrogant. And yet if you if you if you have a certain God construct, 
okay, of what God is like. If you really believe that God is like a certain being who is going to come and rule the world in a certain way, this is not the way that you picture God. So, um, God is mourning for lost souls. God is gentle. God hungers and thirsts for righteousness in his children. God is merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker. That's a thought. You look at what religion has done to God, and most religions have very little about being peacemaker in God being a peacemaker. Persecuted for the sake of doing the right thing. God was insulted and persecuted, subject of all sorts of evil sayings against him. My, my brother-in-law is an atheist, very devout, and he, he has a website called, um, um, and I'm blanking on the name of the website, but it's something about the, the misstatements of um, the God construct and um, the ability of rulers to rule based on God's Benevolence. Okay? God is the salt of the earth. Okay? God is the light of the world. God was a source of all Moses' teachings and the writings of the prophets. Now, you know, we talk about the law and the prophets. When, when they're talking about the law and the prophets, they're talking about the law and the prophets. When you look at the Bible, you have the law first five books, and the prophetic writings, and the poetry, okay? And some Bibles are arranged in that, that way. Um, now, it really concerned me because Daniel, the book of Daniel, is included in the poetry section, okay? So it kind of gives you an idea of what the people who collected these into these divisions thought of the book of Daniel and its accuracy or veracity or how you're supposed to use it. It was a poem. Anyway, all right. God is not angry with his brethren. Okay? That's saying a lot. He only has good things to say about his children. He will not divorce his wife except for unchastity. And it goes on. I won't won't go through all the the things, but... um, all right. Um, turning to Sabbath afternoons um, quarterly. Um, I don't think God will divorce his wife for any reason. He will let her go if she chooses to leave. Well, I think, okay. Does it okay. send her away, uh, in other words? I, I'm, getting, I'm getting on dangerous territory here. Yeah. And speaking about divorce, because, you know, whatever. But um, my understanding of divorce is there is a, a loss of relationship. And then there is a written document that says there's a loss of relationship. Okay? So in that realm, in that definition, then there's, Christ will only divorce his bride for if she goes away, and then he declares 
he makes a declarative statement of, it is finished. Okay? And so, in that realm... Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that it's not God that leaves. It's not God that leaves, nor ask for the divorce. And and, and that goes back to... Church, quote, bride, that, that asks for the divorce. Right. And that goes back to, he will not divorce his wife except for unchastity. Okay? But even then, it's her choice. Not, right. not because it's not his unchastity. It's not, be, well, not even because he wants her to leave because right. of her unchastity. Right. It's right. because she wants to leave. Correct. And he's giving her that freedom in Correct. love to move on. Right. He, for, he would forgive the, uh, right. the uh, unfaithfulness if, if, she, if the, quote, bride repented right. and returned to the relationship. Right. Yeah. Okay, good. We're going to come back later that. Okay. All right. So, reading the, uh, <laughs> a paragraph on Sabbath afternoon's lesson, um, third paragraph. The Sermon on the Mount is the most powerful sermon ever preached. His words have profoundly influenced not only the, his immediate listeners, but all who would hear his life-changing messages down through the centuries and even to our times. But we also must apply it. How do we do that? Oops. I'm... My electronic um, fingers are not doing well. Okay. How do we apply it? How does anything we believe translate into something that we are? It seems easier to grab a set of rules of behavior, and we can adopt a certain way how we talk. Now, I met someone this morning who, who speaks in a certain way. She grew up in a different part of the world, and she, she speaks different than I do. When I get tired, I even speak in a different way than I do. Um, <laughs> you can get, get my drift. Um, <laughs> yesterday in the office, one of my employees, who is of a different cultural background than me, um, asked me a question. And I had to ask her about four times, and finally I had an interpreter. Now, we were both speaking English, or what we called English, but I couldn't understand her, and she couldn't understand me, and so we had another employee who was standing there laughing, saying, Dr. Moses, you know, she's asking you, and repeated the question in English, you know. (laughs) So... We talk a certain way, we dress a certain way, we limit our activities to accepted behavior based on external forces sometimes, but do we really believe it? We will never come to change our behavior to be God-like until we see God in a positive light and truly understand his character as portrayed in the Sermon on the Mount, that he is like those things. It goes back to 2 Corinthians 3.18. We become like the object or the person we worship and admire. Or, as in John 17.3, when Christ is praying, it says, Eternal life means to know you, the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ, whom you sent. It, um, to know someone experientially. It wasn't until fairly late in the writing of the New Testament that the statement, God is love, is made. You think about it. That was written in 1 John 4.8. When was 1 John 4.8 written? That was a gospel written by the Apostle John, 
It's one of the last books written in the entire Bible. There's all these sacred writings before it, and no one had ever written that. Why? Because they thought it was self-evident. The attributes of God had long previously been demonstrated from the creation of the world to the demonstration by his Son that God is other-centered in all his actions and principles. Okay? You know, if you think about it, in the Sermon on the Mount, God is described as happy, other-centered, not showy, and servanthood. And yet that's not what we appear that God is like. That's not how we see him coming a second time. If you read 1 Corinthians 13, it describes love. And if you see any of those descriptions of love that do not match with your description of God, then I think there's a problem. Does not remember wrongs. We have a whole system about the judgment and tallying rights and wrongs and forgiving this and forgiving that and wiping this out and doing that, etc. And yet, in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not remember wrongs. Galatians 5.22, the Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness or humility, and self-control. And yet, some, often our appearance of what God is like has no close association with that. These texts are just a recapitulation of what God has demonstrated to the whole universe and their center of themes that angels love to see and tell about. 1 Peter 1.10 Alright, moving on to Sunday's lesson. It says, principles and standards. Skim through the Sermon on the Mount, summarize on the lines below what stands out most in your mind about it and what it says to you and I would, in parentheses, say, about God. What is God like? Okay. Ah. Sorry. Um, just take 1 Corinthians 13 and not, not even mention the word love. And just insert it every time you saw the word love. You put God in there based on First uh, John 8. And, you know, God is love. So, you know, the greatest of these is God, or at the very end. But I mean, every every time it mentions the word love, you could probably put the word God in there, right? God is not. You should be able to. You should be able to, if your concept of God is what He should be. If God is love, okay. We had an evangelist come over and to our camp meeting, and he said, "When when I ask a non-Adventist, are you saved?" They always say, "Yes, I am saved." Praise the Lord, hallelujah. When he asks an Adventist, are you saved? They go, oh, so. Um, I'm not sure. But we have the assurance. And we need to have that faith that God and Christ is knocking on the door of our hearts. He never gives up. It's us who, who gives up on him. So the, the issue is there is what, what we think God is like. If we truly think God is out to get us and to prove that we aren't savable, you know, we're not really trusting God to be the good pe- person that he should be, right? If, if we're truly that unsettled about that issue. All right. Um, going on to Monday's lesson, 
Uh, let me read the first paragraph of, of Monday's lesson. Um, some Christians view the Sermon on the Mount as a new law of Christ, one that replaced the law of God. They say that a system of legalism was now replaced with a system of grace, or that Jesus' law differs from the law of God itself. These views are misconceptions about the Sermon on the Mount. Would this discussion take place about the law of gravity? It wouldn't be an issue. So, if, you, if you're having this discussion about the law of God versus the law of grace, okay, why, why are you understanding this? What do you understand the law to be? If the law is a made-up something, okay, a determined something, something that someone has come up with, even God, then it may make sense. But if it's the principle in which this whole universe is de- designed, then if you took away gravity, if you took away the principle in which things are made, would that make sense? It doesn't make sense. So only if the law of God is an enacted law would this make sense. It asks us to read Genesis fifteen six, And I would like to read it in three translations. Okay? Reading Genesis 15, 6, it says, how does reading this passage in a different, I'm sorry, it says, um, how does this talk about grace? Um, um, How does this help us to understand that salvation has always been about faith? So let's read it in three different translations. NIV, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Okay? NIV. The New American Standard Bible. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. The Good News Translation. Abram put his trust in the Lord and because of this the Lord was pleased with him and accepted him. What's the difference between those three translations? One sort of seems like an accounting thing, and you credit something, and you put it on the, as you said, you were talking about the rights and wrongs, it almost gives the idea that, well, you know, that's, 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 on, the, that's on the credit side, which is good, you know. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like a legal process or a, 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 a parts. How many parts do I have? Well, rightly understood, there's no difference between the translations. Okay. Okay. If, if you're an accounting, you don't credit some someone something unless that something is there. You don't have you don't be credited for assets unless you actually have the assets. Okay. You're not uh, considered to have liabilities unless you have debts. So uh, we have we have misunderstood it, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to mean you credited something and maybe hey, it's on credit, we'll pay it later. But in a, in a true a strict accounting sense the word Credit is, 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 a, is a, an asset that someone has. Okay. Be, I, I, just, I brought this up because I think you have to be wary of your translator. Um, in my practice, I, we have four translators that are hired by the hospital to come in and help us with Spanish. Um, depending upon the translator that shows up, depends on how I talk. 
Okay? Because, and I'm, I'm, I'm learning Spanish slowly, you know, the, the little CDs in the car and the way to work, and etc. During the cold months, they have the top up and so I can hear. And the, during the, the warm months, I, don't, I can't hear, so I just turn off the Spanish. But um, uh, until we slow down to the city streets or whatever and freeway can't hear. But um, so I've learned as we've gone along that how they're translating what I'm telling the patient is markedly different based on their understanding of what's going on. And depending upon how a person understands what's going on is how the, 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 that translation of the Bible is written. Okay? Preconceived ideas on how we translate something, whether it's Spanish or Hebrew or Greek or Swahili, alters how we, we, we tell someone. Okay? This whole page on this Monday's lesson appears to be from a context of a legal understanding of salvation or at least an external process that is taking place, okay? As it's applied to the individual who's being saved. I think salvation is about two people, a human being and God. We are saved by God. We're not by saved by grace. We're not saved by prayer. We're not saved by trust. We're, not sa- We're saved by God. We're not saved by a substance, process, or transaction. We are saved by a gracious being who, as in Galatians 2.20 says, who loved us and gave himself for us. Tuesday's lesson. Um, The scribes and the Pharisees. At the bottom of the page, it says, read Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams and with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath told you, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Okay, the paragraph below that says, even in Old Testament times, the sacrifices were not an end in themselves, but a means to an end. And that end was a life in which followers of God reflect the love and character of God, something that could be done only through a complete surrender to God and a realization of our other dependence on the saving grace. Pharisees were definitely not a model on how a follower of the Lord should live. So I'm going to ask an obvious question. Who is the model of humanity for us? Jesus. If that's correct, our, and only Christ is the model, then the church leaders should never be our model, right? Okay. So what about 1 Corinthians 11.1? 1? Paul's writing. Imitate me, then, as I imitate Christ. What gives? If, if a church leader is not to be our model, then why are we to imitate Paul? As long as he imitates Christ. <laughs> that depends upon personal interpretation. You know, I mean, you know, she or he or whoever may be thinking they're imitating Christ, and so I can imitate them. 
Yes. If you're following Christ and somebody else is following Christ, they can be closer in their walk than you are, and you will know them by the fruit of your spirit, and your spirit can give you that discernment. But that doesn't mean they're a church leader. It just means there's somebody walking closer to Christ. Okay. Someone read 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greek, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am seeking my for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Okay. This statement about following or imitating Paul is just followed this statement. Okay? So Paul is not saying copy him. He's saying, I'm trying to copy Christ. You do the same. It's not about imitating Paul. It's imitating Christ. And if you read this whole passage, this passage is used by some people that I've grown up with uh, to tell me that I was supposed to follow them. And yet Paul was not saying that, he, that we are to follow him. It's, if you could read this whole passage from um, 10.31 through 10.33 and then 11.1, this is all one statement of we are to be following Christ. Someone else is never our example of right living. Yes. Yeah, that's well said, and, and we do need to flesh out the context of it, but uh, as Chris mentioned earlier, the Corinthians were on a different walk. They were, they were scriptural children. They were, they were Christian children. And sometimes children derive a benefit from imitating their parents until they grow up into adulthood and can make informed decisions themselves in adulthood about, well, you know what, that behavior was not worth imitating. This one was. Yeah, and I think in, this, in, the, in the context of children, and maybe we as children of Christ and, and new, new members of a church, whatever we have to look around us, etc., but I, I fear for us becoming shadow Christians. Correct. Yes. I think um, what it's really saying is like, if you're following Christ, you're, you're other-centered instead of self-centered. Going to Wednesday's lesson is another topic that we love to talk about. Perfection. Okay? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.48 says, You must be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Then we say, oh yes, but it's all about love. So we just need to be perfect in love. And I'm not certain that there's much of a difference. Yesterday, I was studying for a lecture that I had to give at 11 o'clock. Now, unfortunately, because of my week had been fairly hectic and busy, and I had operated until late in the night, several nights in a row, I hadn't had time to prepare for this lecture, and so I was, I'm cramming for this lecture, and in walks this young woman who informed me that she was going to tell me how the office should run, and that she had investigated how the office had run, and that as a result of observing how the office had run, she was going to go to the management and tell them how the office should run. And she started providing principles in which we were going to change how the office would run. This was a person I had never seen before in my life. She had never come to the office when I had been there. 
And so I immediately got really defensive. And she says, have I offended you in some way? I said, no, you haven't offended me. I don't know who you are. I probably went on to say a few other things that I wish I had not have said if, if I truly was treating her perfectly in love. Okay? So I don't mean to say that I'm up here and you're out there and, and that, you know, you're supposed to be perfect in love and I, and, and I whatever, you know. Um... There's a paragraph in, in Wednesday's lesson that I thought was well said. Um, I'm not certain that I'm any better at it than, you know. But I think it is well said. So let's read the last paragraph on Wednesday's lesson at the bottom of the page. The important thing to remember here is that God does not ask of us anything that he cannot accomplish in us. If left to ourselves, if if dominated by our sinful and selfish hearts, who would love their enemies? That's not how the world works. But are we not now citizens of another kingdom? We have the promise that if we surrender ourselves to God, then he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 and what greater work could God do in us than to get us in our own sphere to love as he loves? I think it's well said. But I also want to make a, a couple other points about Matthew five forty-eight. People are challenged by this text. Be ye perfect. Somehow they have it confused with salvation. I don't see anywhere in this statement that says, unless you're perfect, you won't be saved. But that's what I was told when I was growing up. In essence, okay, perfection is not salvation. Perfection is character. Character is something that is developed. Character is something that grows. Now, in, in, um, in Hebrews, it talks about Christ as he's growing. He said, and when he was made perfect. And we don't believe that he was imperfect and then he was made perfect. It means that he grew up into imperfection, you know, and that he developed a perfect character. Okay. And, and I realize that we start out at different places based on our heritage, our, our genetics, our environment, and whatnot. Um, this week, um, in this lecture that I was using, I was using x-ray examples of various pathologies, and I came across um, a textbook x-ray to illustrate the point I was going to make. 
But I wanted a little bit of the history, and so what I do in this in this lecture environment is uh, we have only a couple residents, but sometimes four or five residents sitting there, and I say, okay, go to medical record number, whatever. We pull up the x-ray, a certain date. We, we say, okay, read that film. Tell me what is, was on that film. And that's how they learn how to read the film and, and whatnot, et cetera. And so... But it needs to have a little story to go along with it. What's the exam? What's their history and whatnot, et cetera. And so I couldn't remember this x-ray. And so I thought, I'll look up this person. And I looked up the person and it was too old. I didn't have the electronic medical record for that patient. And so I thought, well, maybe there's some other information that can get clues about what happened with this individual. And so I looked to their more recent thing and up popped a picture. And the picture was a beautiful individual. And I thought, Wow. And Teller read the medical record. And the medical record talked about all these defects in their, their body. And um, I think sometimes we as individuals see the perfect Christian, whoever that is in our environment, and then when they don't have perfect love, we're disappointed. We have conflicts with really and yet that was never our example that was never our model on which we move our character from christ brings his character into our lives he is able he is the creator and he is creating in us a perfect character it is something we are growing into it's not our salvation it is our character Character is the only thing we can take to heaven. And um, I, th- I think we, we have it all mixed up when we are confusing perfection, our character, and salvation. It's not about salvation. Salvation is our God. Our God is able to save us. Now, if I constantly did lousy things to my wife, she would not stick around, you know? That's a relationship. That's our salvation, is our relationship with God. Going on to Thursday's lesson. Um, Thursday's lesson was about four parables, okay? A treasure hid in a field when he found it dug it up, hid it all away, went off, sold everything he had to purchase this treasure, right? The pearl, the pearl salesman that found the perfect pearl and sold everything he had for the perfect pearl. The fisherman who caught all sorts of fish, and when they brought them up on the shore, they threw some into the basket to sell, and others... They threw away. Christ is saying the kingdom of God is like all these things. Okay? And then Christ makes a statement that says, um, oop, I didn't, I didn't write it down. Um, um, it's Matthew 13, 52. Uh, let me see if I can quickly come up to it. Uh, Matthew 13. Oop. Come on. Matthew 13, let's go there. So do you understand these things, Jesus asked them? Yes, they answered. 
So he replied, This means then that every teacher of the law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who takes new and old things out of his storage room. Why do you take new things and old things out of your storage room? Meaning your, your pantry? What do, you, what, what do you put in your pantry? Food. What's the purpose of food? To feed you and your family. You bring new and old food out of your pantry and make recipes to nourish your family. Okay? Christ is talking about new and old experiences which we are, are bringing out of our, our storehouse, our experiences, our walk with God, our understanding of Him, to nourish those who we come in contact with. You know, it's not just one thing that we have. It's not just old stuff that we have. It's not just new stuff we have. We are walking with God, and as we get new and old things, we are bringing them out of our pantry to, to, to nourish those. The crucial thing in all, in all of these parables was that there was something of great value that they were, that they were willing to give up everything for to gain. Okay? The last paragraph says, Thus, to apply to our lives what God asks of us, we need to make a choice to separate ourselves from all the things of the world and of the flesh and let God's Spirit fill us instead. This might not be easy. It will require a death to self, a taking up of life one's cross. But if we always have before us the value and worth of what we are promised, we should have all the motivation we need to make the choices that we must. This is Greek. How do we do this? How do you take... Uh, this not might be easy, I'll say. It will require death to self. How do you do that? It's just a choice. It's just a choice. It's a hard choice, but it's a choice. Okay. Can you expound on that? Well, usually a death is now... You're not wanting to do something, okay, but you know you should, so you make a choice. I think it's like, you know, a surrendered heart to God is more beautiful than the thousand doves in flight and um, the Sixteen Chapel. So you surrender. Okay. I have a... a, a, a several paragraphs to read, and usually I don't like to read this long of a, par- a, a, a passage, but I thought it was very appropriate for how do we die to self? How do we become somebody else? Because to me, that's that's really hard concept to understand. Christ has given us no assurance that to attain perfection of character is an easy matter. A noble, all-around character is not inherited. It does not come to us by accident. A noble character is earned. Well, that's a scary t- term when you talk about salvation. But it's talking about, talking about salvation. This is, this is character, okay? We get so concerned about reading earned and work and everything else. This is character. This is not salvation. So, 
A noble character is earned by individual effort through the merits of grace and, and Christ. God gives the talents, the powers of the mind. We form the character. It is formed by hard, stern battles with self. Conflict after conflict must be waged against hereditary tendencies. We shall have to criticize ourselves closely and allow not one unfavorable trait to remain uncorrected. A character formed according to the divine likeness is the only treasure that we can take from this world to the next. Those who are under the instruction of Christ in this world will take every divine attainment with them to the heavenly mansions. The heavenly intelligence will work with a human agent who seeks with determined faith that perfection of character which will reach out to perfection in action. To everyone engaged in this work, Christ says, I am at your, I am at your right hand to help you. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. That's a strong statement. Whatever is to be done at his command may be accomplished in his strength. All his biddings are enablings. Character is power. The silent witness of a true, unselfish, godly life carries an almost irresistible influence. By revealing in our own life the character of Christ, we cooperate with him in the work of saving souls. It is only by revealing in our life his character that we can cooperate with him. And the wider the sphere of our influence, the more good we may do. When those who profess to serve God follow Christ's examples, practicing the principles of the law in their daily life, when their every act bears witness that they love God supremely and their neighbor as themselves, then will the church have power to move the world. We know not what results a day, an hour, or a moment may be determined, and never should we begin the day without committing our ways to our Heavenly Father. When unconsciously we are in the danger of exerting a wrong influence, the angels will be by our side, prompting us to a better course, choosing our words for us, influencing our actions. Thus our influence may be a silent, unconscious, but mighty power in drawing others to Christ and the heavenly world. Our Father Cares, page 308 and 309. All right. Yes. I think a prayer that we have, I know I have to pray, is, Lord, give me a heart that wants to do your will. Because my sinful heart doesn't want to do those hard things, those hard choices. But as he comes in and gives me more of his his love in my heart, then that choice is easier and gets easier as my heart is changed. What is the source of that? The Spirit, His Holy Spirit working in our life. The Spirit not only brings you the power to do it, but He also brings you the desire to even do that. Because in our true self, we don't even desire to do that. And it's only by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, blah, blah, blah. But we don't even want to do that without the Spirit influence in our life. Okay? 
We have to turn the valve to allow him to give us that. For um, the Friday's lesson, I usually don't get to Friday's lesson, but I have one question that they had. Is, is what, what would it be like living in a world where everyone followed the principles found in the Sermon on the Mount? Do you know the good news? That's right. We have the privilege. Don't worry. We have the privilege to find out. Isn't that incredible? I mean, you know, my day is consumed with things that I will not have in heaven. My job. My keys. Have you ever thought that you will not have to have a key in heaven? You know, um, where my office is, where I work, I, I travel in the back door. I mean, that's, that's how you get to the, my office. I go into the back door. Every day I pull out a key, and it has a red marker on it so I can find it. That's the key to the back door. Okay? Now, I have a new partner who's been there now for about a year. She's, an, she's not a surgeon. She's a non-op, etc. Very nice woman. And um, she can't stand to use a key. So one of the first things she does when she comes in the morning is um, she unlocks this door. There's a way that you can push the little button thing on the side of the thing that unlocks it. And you can just hit this, this lever and you come into the back door. We're a little bit nervous about that because our, our personal effects and our computers and whatnot are out there in their desk and their doors are always open and et cetera and whatnot. And so there's a little bit of angst over whether we unlock this or not. Some day my nose is going to come in. I'll be into the Sabbath school class with a, a something on my nose because it'll be broken. Because we've all come to the habit of running up to the door and just hitting the lever and just keep it on walking. Except for when she's not there. You know, I will be so happy not to have to have a key. You know? Everyone will be honest. Everyone will be looking out for the best interests of you. And you'll no longer have to have a key. But the degree to which we apply these principles and the degree to which we spread these principles around, we experience heaven now. I mean, it's glimmers, it's glimpses. There's a reason why we fellowship with each other. Because there's a, it's different maybe than our work week. And we get glimpses of heaven. You know, to know God, and that's to be showing Him in your life, is eternal life. It starts now. You know, one other thing along that same line is, I don't know what it means. I'm intrigued by the statement about heaven, as in the new Jerusalem. The tree of life is on either side of the river, okay? And it says, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. You know, I try not to be a bigot. I try not to be um, a person who doesn't like other nationalities. But I can't understand the things. We were just talking this morning about New Zealand. I went to New Zealand to visit. It was a wonderful place. I came ve- I mean, this close to staying there. They offered me a job. And if I could have afforded to come home and see my family every so often, I would have stayed there. But the, the, the circumstances were not that way. But anyway, but I was amazed. They have a different language. They speak English. And um, all the time I was going, I was running into English 
that I didn't understand. You know? And because of it, I stayed for a while with a farmer on his, his sheep ranch. And he would tell me something, and I would just look at him like, are you crazy? You know? Won't it be wonderful to be one? To have individuals, but to not be misunderstanding what, what people are saying. Because we will have not only best interest of the other person in life, but we'll also want to be with them. Anyway, we better close. Let's bow our heads. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your presence. May we truly grow in grace. May we learn to live your love. May we have characters that are acceptable to those around us so that they can wish to be like us in heaven. May we honor you with our life, with our characters, with our our speech and how we approach others. And may we be united with you. Amen.